Let's get into it then. We're joined today by Alex Kane, a journalist with Jewish Currents, The Intercept, Vice, and In These Times, largely covering Israel and the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And and you're you're one of my favorite people to read on these issues. You always you put out a lot of work, and um, so I re- really recommend checking out his website and his Twitter. But before we get into the fun stuff of the of the Israel-Palestine conflict and Israeli politics. Um, I wanted to let listeners know where we know each other from, which is the ska scene of northern Westchester, New York. Oh, my God. I did not know that either. I'm here, too, by the way. Hi, it's me, Jamie. Uh, That is adorable. Uh, Good times. Good times. Can I talk about uh, the band that you were in? Or do you want to talk about it? So Alex was the the drummer in the best ska band probably ever in northern Westchester, (laughs) the No Name Charlies. Oh, my um, God. So why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, how you went from being a, a ska drummer to a, uh, a a journalist? And do you still like ska? I definitely still like ska. Um, I although I, I, I don't I don't li- like I don't even know if there are new ska bands or new ska punk bands. Like, do they even exist if they're new, if they're not from the late 90s and like early 2000s or late, you know, kind of mid to mid 2000s? I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I definitely, I mean, I haven't been to a ska show in, oh my God, a, a long time. Um, but I definitely still listen to all the, all the bands that I was listening to as a teenager, like, you know, Catch-22 and Streetlight Manifesto and Big D and the Kids Table. And then also, like, some of the old-school ska stuff, you know, to- the, the, the Toasters and um, Lesson Jake and uh, uh, the Scottalites. Um, and so, I mean, I, I mean, I, I and, and, and I still play drums, um, although not in a ska band, and, and occasionally play in a, in a sort of folky uh, a band. It's a, but, but in terms of how I, how I became, how I went from uh, drummer to, to journalist is a good question. I mean, actually I would say like, there is a through line, um, in high school is when I was first sort of politicized, like around the U S invasion of Iraq, which is how I got interested in U S foreign policy in the middle East, but also, um, you know, fell in love with punk and, and folk punk and, and also ska punk, of course. And the sort of politics um, that a lot of these singers and, and artists were, were espousing were, you know, very, very left wing, mostly anarchist. And, um, you know, I wanted to read what, what they were sort of referencing and talking about. And so I would say music definitely had a big, role in, ter- in, in terms of like, uh, directing me towards the left in, in general. Um, and, and then, you know, through a combination of sort of growing up as the U S was invaded in Iraq and being Jewish and, um, folk punk and punk rock in general. Um, and then, you know, going to protests in New York, all of these threads sort of coalesced, um, into a general interest in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, and then in 2009, when Israel bombed Gaza in its first uh, one, or it's one basically the first sort of heavy assault um, on Gaza, uh, which was the late 2008-2009, um, I became very, very interested in the U.S. role in Israel-Palestine um, and what. Israel was, was doing, uh, in Gaza at that time, and then traveled to the region, um, and sort of from there began to report and, and write about it. I can't believe you actually answered that question. Well, that was such a dumb question (laughs) and you actually did it. Good job, man. And I'm glad that you, yeah, you went the political route from that scene and you didn't become like, uh, cause a lot of, cause yeah, a lot of those bands were political, but a lot of it was about like, uh, kind of suburban bros fantasizing about being some kind of gangster. I guess that comes from like right, the rude right. boy tradition. 
but yeah. yeah, you know, you and, and your band, which I, as I recall, had about 17 people in it. Um, we would see each other often on the Metro North heading to New York to go to a protest, anti-war protest, or to a folk punk show or some combination of the two. Yeah. Uh, so cool to stay in touch after all these years. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's great. It's great to, great to reconnect. And, and yeah, really like those, those, those early teen moments traveling to New York were, were really, they ended up being quite formative, um, to my life. Absolutely. A lot of, a lot of ours, I think a lot of ours, a lot of us had that experience. I think, uh, I was not in ska band, but, um, you know, I would come in and go to shows and stuff, just the suburban, you know, suburban Jewish PMC experience. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm sad that Sean's not here because he too used to be in a ska band and I could be making fun of him right now. I think uh, I'd prefer to make fun of you for not being in a ska band. That's the real shame. <laughs> um, so let's get into the the meat of the episode. Um, it's been uh, a couple weeks since we saw a lot of solidarity protests in the United States over the, the new bombing in Gaza and the... Uh, the hostilities, the conflict within East Jerusalem and, and around Israel and Palestine. Uh, so, Alex, do you want to just give us an update on, like, what's been going on? Is there a ceasefire? Are things coming down? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is a lot um, going on, but the, so the, the, you know, the solidarity protests have, you know, sort of, quieted down a bit and also the media attention has quieted down and that's because there is no active bombardment of gaza um from from israeli warplanes but the quote the so-called ceasefire meaning no palestinian no palestinian political groups firing rockets um at at israel um is a one-sided ceasefire because the overarching situation is of course israeli control over all of the territory um, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, um, you know, Israel-Palestine. Um, and the occupation continues. Israel's system of control and domination over Palestinians continues. The Israeli blockade on Gaza, which is an air, land, and sea blockade, which severely restricts what gets in and what gets out of Gaza, continues. And in Jerusalem, um, which was central to the escalation in violence, the attempts to forcibly displace um, dozens of Palestinian families out of strategic areas in occupied East Jerusalem continue. Um, and, you know, institutional discrimination against Palestinian citizens of Israel within Israel, they, they are 20% of the population within Israel. And we can you know, get into like some of the basics if you if 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 you think that your your listeners would benefit from that. Um, that I mean, I think I would benefit from it yeah. honestly. Yeah. Good. Okay. So I I can I can do that. You know, as as quickly as as possible. I mean, the I mean the the thing that as I as I was sort of explaining this, I mean, I think what what I'm trying to delineate is like the different types of control that Israel has over different categories of Palestinians. Um, so, you know, there is one ultimate authority in Israel-Palestine, meaning, and when I say Israel-Palestine, like that's a deliberate choice. Like there's no separation between Israel and Palestine. It's one territory, it's one entity, and the Israeli government um, has ultimate control over the lives of, of everybody both Israeli, Jewish, and Palestinian that that live there, within Israel, um, within the you know the recognized borders of Israel, so excluding the occupied territories, which are the West Bank and Gaza, there's about twenty percent of the population that is um, Palestinian. Um, in the press, you might hear them referred to as Israeli Arabs or Arabs in Israel or Palestinian Israelis. Um, I think probably the most accurate term would be like Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship. I mean, they didn't choose to become Israeli citizens. You know, the, the border didn't cross, you know, they didn't cross the border, the border, the border crossed them. Right. Like, you know, when Israel was founded in 1948, um, the majority of Palestinians um, in, 
uh, within the territory that, that would become known as Israel fled uh, or were expelled by the forces that ultimately became the Israeli army, but about 150,000 stayed behind. And they and their descendants make up the now 20% of the population, about 1.8 million, I think, um, are, are, are Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship. And so they are citizens of the state of Israel, but um, they do face um, institutionalized discrimination um, access in terms of access to land, uh, employment, um, and also in general how they're viewed by Israel, which... Um, of course, Israel's sort of um, uh, number one kind of uh, like driving basis for the state is like a Jewish state, which 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 in the context for Palestinians means like discrimination. So, but they are citizens, right? And so they get uh, many of the the sort of uh, benefits of becoming um, Israeli citizens. You know, access to Israeli healthcare and 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 so on. Um, when you go to East Jerusalem, it's a different situation. Israel. Um, in 1967, conquered East Jerusalem, as well as the West Bank and Gaza from Jordan, in the case of the West Bank and Jerusalem, East Jerusalem and Egypt in, in Gaza. So Israel defeated Egypt and Jordan and other Arab states in the 1967 war and took control over all of Jerusalem. And um, after taking control of Jerusalem, um, annexed um, East Jerusalem to um Israeli uh, to, to Israel. Uh, it was never recognized by the international community um, uh, or even by the United States uh, until uh, arguably the, the Trump era. Um, but the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, uh, most of them don't have citizenship and are considered permanent residents. Um, and their residency status has to be maintained. And, and, and Israel, I think, has revoked something like 15,000 um, residency permits from Jerusalem Palestinians since 1967. And in, West, in the West Bank, um, Palestinians are not permanent residents nor citizens, uh, same in Gaza. Um, the situations in the West Bank and Gaza are slightly different. The West Bank is, um, is a site where there are many Israeli settlements, meaning settlements that are built for Israeli citizens in occupied territory that Palestinians cannot live in. Um, and so the, the the sort of settlement project has essentially sliced and diced up the West Bank, and there's a whole sort of infrastructure that has been built for settlers, which makes Palestinian lives there very difficult. And in Gaza, since 2007, um, has been under an Israeli blockade. There were settlers in Gaza until 2005, when what's known as the disengagement happened, and Israel pulled its settlers and its army out of the interior of Gaza, but Israel continues to be um, the, uh, uh, you know, blockading uh, Gaza from the air, land, and sea. So that's kind of like the, the basic um, run-of-the-mill um, situation right now for Palestinians under Israeli rule. So what, what about the recent uh, conflict or... <laughs> I hate to even call it that because that like smooths over what's actually happening and how unequal the sides are, right? Um, uh-huh. I've heard a number of ideas about it. it. Was it Netanyahu trying to hold on to power, which obviously failed? He lost to an even bigger fascist. Um, was it people acting against their landlords? Uh, I know it wasn't only about landlords, but it wasn't not about landlords, right? So, so this is this is how I would this is how I would this is how I like explain the like the recent escalation, um, and it is just an escalation, right? Like the the overall system is like violent to its core. Like there's nothing nonviolent about maintaining a military occupation, um, but of course there are sort of ebbs and flows of like escalations of violence, and so the story begins in. Uh, Ramadan, the Islamic holy month, you know, most Palestinians are Muslim. Um, there are, there are not all Palestinians are Muslim, which some people may not realize there is a, a minority of Palestinians who are Christian, but the majority are Muslim. And Ramadan of course is, is an important, um, month for them. And, and, um, you know, uh, in Jerusalem, young Palestinians typically, um, 
during Ramadan, after they break their fast at night, um, they gather in Damascus Gate, which is a sort of plaza that leads into the old city of Jerusalem. So the Israeli authorities, the Israeli police, decided to block off um, the gate from Palestinians. Um, they didn't want Palestinians to gather. Um, and it was really like a, a, a claim of ownership um, that, that Israel was imposing on Palestinians. Like, you, you think this is a free space for you? You know, let's, let's, let's change that. So that decision uh, set off uh, Palestinian protests, like leaderless sort of youth-led protests that were happening every night in Jerusalem. Um, and um, that, of course, led to a, an, an increase in tensions. And meanwhile, in sort of maybe like a 15-minute walk or so um, from Damascus Gate is the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. And Sheikh Jarrah uh, has long been a target of Israeli settlers. They want to um, displace Palestinian families from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah and take it over as a way to fragment uh, Palestinian communities and consolidate um, Israeli Jewish uh, demographic dominance and political dominance over Palestinians. And um, one way to do that, of course, is to kick people out from their homes and move Israeli Jewish settlers into those homes. So that, uh, there, you know, there's a court case that is ongoing in Sheikh Jarrah concerning um, a few Palestinian families and in total something like 65 families in, in Sheikh Jarrah face eviction and, and like uh, 100 uh, or so more in another East Jerusalem neighborhood called Silwan. So the Sheikh Jarrah um, uh, settlers were were sort of uh, the, the court case was 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 moving forward, um, and the pro Palestinian protests were were also kicking off in Sheikh Jarrah. In addition to the Palestinian protests in Damascus Gate, um, there was one incident um, that sort of fueled that added more tensions when um, young Palestinians like uploaded a video to TikTok of them harassing um, religious Jewish Israelis. And that angered a lot of um, Israeli Jews, uh, particularly the sort of far right fascist movement in Israel. Um, and then they, so as a res sort of in response to the TikTok, they had um, like a, a march of like a couple hundred, mostly young far right Israelis marching through the streets of Jerusalem, chanting death to the Arabs, um, and, you know, looking for Palestinians to, to target and beat up. And, and a couple were beat up on that night. So then um, the, in the midst of all this, you know, there, there was like thousands of Palestinian worshipers that were coming to Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is a holy site in Jerusalem. It's the third holiest site for Muslims around the world and, and is the holiest site for Muslims within Jerusalem. Um, if, you know, people um, have seen photos of Jerusalem, they probably have seen the famous like Dome of the Rock um, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque is located on the same compound um, near the Dome of the Rock. Um, and, um, and so um, on March 10th, um, Palestinians were at Al-Aqsa Mosque um, uh, sort of both in prayer and also um, to, in their eyes, to defend the mosque from Israeli aggression. Um, and then the Israeli police decided to invade the mosque uh, on, um, like at the end of Ramadan, and shot tear gas and rubber bullets, injuring over 200 Palestinians and uh, Hamas, the Palestinian uh, political faction that controls Gaza, which I'm sure your listeners have heard plenty uh, about, um, uh, threatened that if Israel didn't withdraw from Al-Aqsa Mosque um, and release prisoners that they had arrested, uh, release people that they had arrested recently, that they would begin to fire rockets at Israel. And they, they did do that uh, that night. And so in response, Israel um, began to bomb Gaza, and that lasted for about two weeks. And um, that, so that's sort of how this situation escalated 
to to war. There's been some speculation that uh, this whole escalation was sort of the mechanism of, of Netanyahu's coalition trying to stay in power. Do you think there's any truth to that? Um, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, but, uh, Nathan Thrall, um, who's a analyst who lives in Jerusalem, gave a good interview to Jacobin magazine where he dismissed that. And it was pretty convincing to me. Um, you know, um, the, his reasoning was like, you know, uh, Netanyahu is actually fairly, um, he's a fairly risk averse politician in the, in the sort of, in the Israeli political context and, you know, um, you know, deciding to like launch a war to save your political career is like a really risky move. And also like, it's not, it wasn't just Netanyahu's decision. It was like the security cabinet's decision. And so like some of the, the, the cabinet members of Netanyahu are his political opponents. So this is how Israeli politics works. Often you're in government with people that you hate, <laughs> um, even in the same cabinet. And so I don't think that someone like Benny Gantz, who, who is, was the defense minister and charged with overseeing the Gaza war would have allowed his political rival Netanyahu to just go to war to save his own political career. Um, that said, it did look for a while like Netanyahu was going to be successful in holding on to power. Um, this war came after a another inconclusive Israeli election where nobody had, uh, or Netanyahu at least, did not have enough um, seats to form a government. Uh, and his opponents were negotiating um, with some more moderate figures and a Palestinian political uh, party. Um, and during when the war happened, and there were like Jewish and Israeli, sorry, Jewish and Palestinian mobs, um, both like killing each other or beating up each other on the streets of Israel, which was unprecedented. The, the negotiations between the Palestinian Islamist political party within Israel called Ram and um, Netanyahu's other opponents like Naftali Bennett were broken off. Basically, the right wing base of Bennett uh, couldn't uh, count Ness um, Bennett sort of negotiating with an Arab politician while um, while Israel was was going to war with with Hamas, um, and this, this isn't just any Arab politician, right? This is uh, he's he's part of a party that's linked with the Muslim Brotherhood. Is that right? Yes, yes. So this is like very um, strange bedfellows, and then the the third member of the coalition is Yair Lapid, who's who's something of a social democrat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, Lapid is 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 is. Uh, or is sort of, I would say, like center left on the Israeli political spectrum, but um, and and like wants him and and other and his other allies want to take some power away from the ultra orthodox parties in Israel. Um, but um, on and on the Palestine issue, he believes in separation, uh, basically Israel ending the occupation, but not ending the occupation fully. Like he said, you know, uh, he wants like a, a permanent Israeli presence in the Jordan Valley, which is in the West Bank, which would be a, a core part of a Palestinian state and does not want to divide Jerusalem, which would also mean that Palestinians would not have a viable capital in East Jerusalem. So that said, he's, he's different. He's much, he's a different political uh, figure than Naftali Bennett, who wants to annex the West Bank. Lapid does not want to annex the West Bank. He wants to withdraw from most of the West Bank, um, separate from the Palestinians, and um, curb the power of the ultra-Orthodox within Israel. Um, and does that, and does, that, uh, does that separation with the Palestinians include population transfer, like moving uh, Israeli Palestinians to the West Bank or to Gaza? That's not part of Lapid's plans. Um, that is part of, of that is a that has been a very prominent part of 
Avigdor Lieberman's plan. So Lieberman, who is also a part of, um, who will be part of the new government that is being formed this week and will likely be sworn in next week, his plan is a two-state solution. Um, uh, but uh, as part of that two-state solution, Israel would transfer um, some of the key sort of Palestinian villages in the north of Israel to a Palestinian state. So they, they would no longer be Israeli citizens. They would be citizens of a Palestinian state in exchange for Israel being able to annex um, some of the uh, bigger West Bank uh, and Jerusalem area Jewish settlements that are near the green line with Israel um, to Israel. So that that's that's part of Lieberman's plans. And, and most Palestinian citizens of Israel also have no interest in that. They consider that to be population transfer and ethnic cleansing. Um, so, but equal has always worked in the past. Right. This is, right. this is, I mean, separate but equal, maybe you could say as Lapid's plan, but this is a, a mainstream position that even uh, liberals in, in Israel support, which is moving uh, just literally ethnic cleansing. I mean, maybe they'll do it in like a nice way, unlike the Nakba, but this is like the horizon of Israeli politics, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I'd call Lieberman a liberal, um, or like. But it's a. I, I'm I mean, not saying that either. I'm just. But like liberals do essentially see this as a solution. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, just to. I mean, I, I know what you're saying. I think the, the con. Like, I, I agree that liberals and like liberal Zionists, you know, the, the, the whole concept of a Jewish state um, and, you know, two-state solution to, like, save the idea of a Jewish democracy is gets close to this idea that a Jewish state shouldn't have, you know, Palestine, like non-Jewish Arabs in it. Um, but I think there's a difference between that. There's a slight difference between that and, like, actively wanting to, like, strip people of, of their citizenship and push them out. But I do see your point in that, like the, like the kind of the universe is the same, right? Like Lieberman is just kind of saying like the quiet part out loud. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk uh, and ask you a little bit about labor Zionism, uh, i.e. this, uh, this idea that seems to have petered out in recent years that you can combine some element of uh, progressivism, even some kind of socialistic workers movement with the idea of Zionism, a.k.a., you know, building a Jewish nation state on this particular landmass. So uh, what happened to the left wing of Zionism? What happened to the labor parties? And um, yeah, is there a, is, is there any hope for the left in Israel? Mm, okay, this is a good question, and I would say I'm definitely not like the expert, but I, but I, but I, I do know some about this, and maybe Andy knows more. I mean, my the sort of my understanding of like where the left has gone in Israel is like, so the the like liberal Zionist left, the labor Zionist left in Israel um, has long pushed for a two state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian issue, meaning that there would be a Jewish majority state and a Palestinian majority state living side by side, different states, obviously linked in some some fashion, but, um, you know, side by side Um, with, because, you know, labor Zionists still believe in a Jewish demographic majority in the way that they got that majority uh, was ethnically cleansing Palestinians. So that is crucial context to understand in terms of labor Zionists, like, you know, ideal vision of Jewish demographic hegemony, excuse me, within, within Israel. Thank you. Um, And, you know, the the labor Zionists were the ones who built the country and dominated the country uh, for decades until the, the late 1970s when, the rise of the Likud uh, party, which remains quite dominant in Israel, um, overtook the Labour Party. But even then, there was a lot of back and forth transfers of power between Labour Zionism and the more right-wing strands of Zionism. Um, t- 
today, in the story of where the Israeli left has gone begins with the Second Intifada. And of course, the you know labor Zionist government or labor Zionist allied politicians have long engaged in negotiations with Palestinian leaders over how to address the Israeli occupation, um, most famously culminating in the Oslo Accords in the early 1990s. Um, but um, the Oslo Accords failed miserably. And in the early 2000s, the Second Intifada Palestinian uprising began. Um, and that uprising was particularly bloody and violent with Palestinian um, suicide bombings within Israel targeting Israeli civilians, um, of course, as well as Israeli bombardments in the West Bank, invasion of Palestinian cities, a lot of Palestinian civilians um, being killed by the Israeli army as well. Um, but the, the, the Palestinian response, um, I think, in the eyes of like the average Israeli, discredited the idea of uh, talks with Palestinians. And that led to the demise of the left. The left could not credibly um, mount their argument that negotiations and diplomacy with Palestinians could succeed um, in the midst of a very violent and bloody campaign that soured many Israelis on this idea. Um, and the, the sort of mantra now in Israel is like, there is no partner for peace. We withdrew from Gaza in 2005 and we got rockets in response. I mean, that leaves out a whole lot, but that is the, the Israeli mantra. And in general, the left has been, you know, the left has been crushed by, by the Israeli right. Um, in part because of that, um, they haven't been able to recover nor have they been able to like, pop, like give like a, a, a big, like, you know, a sort of counter narrative to that. Um, and today, the, the Israeli left is quite weak. Um, and it really depends, of course, like on what you mean by left. Like, there's plenty of people who would say, like, labor Zionism is not leftist at all because it, you know, the labor Zionists that built Israel, like, deliberately excluded Palestinian workers from, uh, from their vision of a, like, a worker driven state. They, of course, evicted Palestinians from their land, displaced them. Um, and led the forces that ultimately um, engaged in, in ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Um, so that's sort of the con contradiction of labor Zionism. And you know, today the labor Zionist parties don't have power or like a compelling vision for the majority of Israelis. Um, you know, majority it's a, the majority of Israelis vote for right wing parties. Um, yeah, my and, understanding of this history, and it, it's, it, I think it is pretty vulgar, but just maybe a, like one perspective on it is that before the state of Israel was founded, the Zionist movement had these two political poles, um, one on the left represented by labor Zionism and David Ben-Gurion, and uh, the, the right of Jabotinsky and the revisionists, um, and that played out to become the labor and the Likud parties that we're familiar with today, but the um, the uh, foundation of the state of Israel in the in this uh, this cycle of war from its foundation and uh, the Nakba and then into the wars of the into the sixties and seventies and the Intifadas uh, basically made Zionism always perpetually in conflict. You could call it a kind of war Zionism, where any pretenses of egalitarianism and internationalism that the left in Israel, whether it be labor Zionism or, or something to the left of that may have had, but it, was, it wasn't very actionable because the country felt as though it was under threat. Um, and this led into the, the peace process of the 90s, which I think Edward Said is a, a good person to read about how that was all a farce, although you know liberal Zionists today will say that that's something we can maybe go back towards. Um, you know, if we can get rid right. of Netanyahu and the Israeli right, then maybe we can have a, a real peace process again, but that peace process itself was something of a farce. So I think what we're seeing today is the, uh, the facade of that, uh, of that contradiction between labor Zionism and revisionist Zionism uh, which was, by the way, very inspired by the the ultranationalist and fascist parties of Europe um, before World War II, uh, yeah. and and now we're just seeing the victory of revisionist Zionism, uh, which I I don't think it could have played out any other way as long as Israel saw itself in constant conflict. 
Yeah, yeah, that that, that those are those are really really good points to raise. And then I, I guess one thing I would add, which may be interested, which may be of interest to like your leftist audience, is like in the you know when when the Zionist movement was picking up steam, like there there was even there was another strain like of like cultural Zionists like Ahed Ha'am, um, who like wanted um, Palestine to be a center of Jewish life and a center of Jewish culture, but not in the form of a state, because they believed that a state would inevitably lead to conflict with the majority non-Jewish Palestinians that were living there, which of course did happen. But there was a strain of Zionism that was like, Jews are persecuted. You know, they face anti-Semitism in Europe, murderous anti-Semitism in Europe. We do need like a safe haven Maybe Palestine could be that because it's like, you know, there's biblical significance, like we could revive Hebrew, we could revive Hebrew there. There were all these sort of dreams that were that they wanted to like divorce from like a state or like political power and all of the trappings of that. Um, of course, they were not successful. But that idea continues to live on um, among some thinkers today, like Peter Beinart, for instance. Um, I think would consider himself like a, a cultural Zionist, even though he's stopped believing in um, a Jewish majority state as, you know, the number one goal that Israel should aspire to. Um, so that's just one kind of interesting uh, element. And then, you know, of course there were, there were also like, you know, the Israeli communist party um, was a forced, uh, you know, in the, in the late 1940s and, and today, it still exists. The name is Khadash. Um, and uh, they're part of the joint list, which is the coalition of Palestinian political parties. But Khadash is the party that has Jewish members as well. So Khadash is the Israeli Communist Party, and they, they're still a force within Israeli politics today. But, you know, nothing, nothing approaching the power of the Israeli right. I'm learning so much from you. Oh my God. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that uh, if you believe in a, an ethno state, you're probably not going to end up being terribly socialist or international in the end. Um, Agreed. I, I I wanted to get into a uh, little bit of the class character of this conflict because a lot of people are framing it as mostly a national conflict or an ethnic one. And I want to I want to know about class, too. So um, what of this Palestinian general strike? I thought it was very interesting to read about and I would like to learn more. Um, is there a Palestinian left? Is there a Palestinian workers movement? And yeah, how does how does class uh, mediate all of this? That is a that is a really interesting question. Um, so there are many ways to answer this. The. So. One, one way that I would answer that is like, so there's a lot of talk about like apartheid and the comparison between Israel and South Africa, although apartheid has taken on a sort of more general term, which is why human rights organizations have applied that term to Israel. But like a lot of the, when you bring up sort of comparisons between Israel and South Africa, a lot of people will say, oh, well, but there's a big difference because, you know, in South Africa, the white minority was reliant on like the black majority to do like menial work and sort of working class work. And they were sort of kept down in, in the, in the sort of class system of South Africa while in Israel, you know, Palestinians don't occupy that same um, uh, sort of position. Like, you know, the Israeli economy doesn't necessarily like rely on Palestinian labor at the moment. And so, but there's a reason for that. Um, and, and there's, there's sort of a lot of nuance in there. So like there are, so the Palestinian general strike really hit like the Israeli real estate construction industry, like pretty hard for one day, right? It wasn't like a prolonged strike, but you know, a lot of Palestinians in the West bank, um, get permits to work in Israel because, um, the wages are so much higher within Israel. You know, Israel has in the West Bank like a captive economy, a captive market. They flood the West Bank with cheaper Israeli products. Um, you know, the restrictions on movement really harm um, Palestinian workers. And so wages are just a lot higher within Israel. And they, 
Um, they have a permit system where a certain number of Palestinians can come into Israel every day to work um, for higher wages. So when Palestinians struck in response to Israel's escalation, you know that 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 was a big deal. The problem is that like there's also Israel has long employed permits as a a tool to um, you know uh, sort of that, that they turn on and off. There was like back during the first Intifada, like Palestinian workers were much more powerful. Um, both within the West Bank and Israel, because there were a lot more of them, and Israel was allowing a lot more of them to travel into Israel uh, because you know they could be paid less than Israeli Jewish citizens, but these Palestinians would be paid more than what they would get in the West Bank. Um, when after the first Intifada and and also after the second Intifada, Israel began using the permits as a punishment tool. Like they they would cut off permits. They would. They would, you know, basically use it as as a valve to to say, oh, well, if you're if you're good and quiescent, you know, then we'll allow your workers to come in and boost your economy. But during these periods of unrest, we're gonna we're gonna sort of stop the issuing of permits or impose new restrictions or impose caps on the amount of permits that we're giving out. And instead of Palestinian workers, they began having um, like Thai migrant workers or Filipino migrant workers come to Israel to do um, some of the media work that like Palestinians would have done in the past, particularly in like agriculture. Um, so that is one important aspect to understand that Israel, if they needed to, they could, they, 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 they can, and they will shut off permits or employers will fire Palestinians if they raise their heads too much politically. Um, and they can replace them with non-Palestinian workers that that they think would be, you know, um, more quiescent and, and would not be, of course, part of the the national struggle that Israel is combating. Man, that's super interesting because that is one sort of point of leverage, I guess, that um, you know, oppressed minorities have, say, in the United States, is hey they're still doing a lot of the work and the ruling class needs them in order to keep functioning. Right. Right. I mean, to a certain degree, that's true in Israel, Palestine, but like, it's also true that, you know, if, if the situation escalates to an extent where Israel wants to punish Palestinians uh, instead of employing them as low wage workers, they could do that and potentially, you know, turn to other ethnic minorities from afar that may want to take their jobs. Um, there's also, of course, the phenomenon of, of Palestinian laborers working in West Bank settlements. Um, the so, like again, not the wages aren't as high as you would get within Israel proper, but they are higher than you would get outside of the settlements. But it's a phenomenon where, like. Palestinian workers are literally building the buildings that are going to make their lives more difficult um, because they're forced into a situation where they have to provide for their family. Um, but like they're building in places where they're not allowed to live in and that contribute to an infrastructure that um, pushes them out and squeezes them. Um, so it's a, you know, you, like there are stories of Palestinians who's like, they like live, they like, you know, they live in their village and their and parts of their village were taken over by Israeli settlements. And they're going to work in those settlements. They're, work, they're going to work in the settlements that dispossess them. Um, it's just that's some of the contortions that occupation has produced within the West Bank. That's so fucked up. Yeah, I mean, I hate to be like capitalism is the problem with everything, but... <laughs> It's not hard to see how, uh, yeah, why do people need to work shitty jobs in the first place? Because of this stupid system that we need to overthrow all over the world, including in Palestine. Totally. All right. So um, we have seen a lot of solidarity protests in the U.S. And it seems like public opinion is starting to shift, at least on a cultural level. 
You know, we've seen segments from uh, John Oliver, who's basically a left liberal. Um, other ones I'm probably forgetting right now. We've had uh, members of Congress be critical of Israel on a level that we haven't really seen before. So do you think this is having any impact and what can we do in the U.S. to help the situation? Um, yeah, so it's true that public opinion has shifted, particularly among Democrats. Not It's shifted among Republicans in the opposite way, um, which is another interesting story, but we'll focus on the left and the Democratic Party right now. Um, you know, the, 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 the numbers of Democrats who support sanctions on Israel have risen. The number of Democrats who support pressuring Israel to end its settlement project and to end its siege on Gaza has risen. Um, and, you know, that has uh, began to show up in Congress. Um, we had during the um, during the, the Israeli assault, we had Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Bernie Sanders introduce historic resolutions that would block um, the sale of bombs to Israel. Um, and we also had Congresswoman Betty McCollum before that introduce a bill that would restrict U.S. funding and make sure that it would not subsidize Israeli practices such as the detention of Palestinian children, the annexation of Palestinian land, or the demolition of Palestinian homes. That said, the, the, the resolution to um, block the sale of bombs to Israel only got 14 co-sponsors within the House out of you know, over 200, so it's a very small minority. And Betty McCollum's bill also, also only has about 25 co-sponsors. Um, so the majority of Democrats support such actions, but only a small minority of Democrats who are most responsive to these you know, the Palestinian rights movement are, um, are, are signing on to these bills. So, you know, that's a big problem. I mean, it's, I, I, um, you know, it's similar to like how the majority of Americans support gun control, but that doesn't show up in Congress either. Um, I mean, you know, at least on gun control, the majority of Democrats support it, but, um, on, on Israel, the majority of Democrats are far away from where the base is. Um, and so like that, you know, that situation has to change in order for the political alliance between the U.S. and Israel to change. Um, because, you know, I mean, you cannot change U.S. policy on the basis of 25 members of Congress, uh, especially ones that are not like the chairs of the committees that oversee uh, U.S. foreign policy. So the answer is like, yes, things are changing, but it's it's not nearly enough. And what's your opinion on some of the tactics that pro-Palestinian activists in the United States are using? The most ongoing one would be BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanctions. The last time uh, Gaza was bombed, sorry, was it 2014? 2014. Um, and now this time there have been calls to block Israeli ships um, or, or ships owned by Israeli shipping firms that are very pro-Zionist and uh, or also to block ships carrying weapons. Um, these are the block the boat protests. And they've been successful in the port of Oakland. And I think they're also organizing one in New Jersey as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what, yeah. what do you think of these tactics? What do you think uh, of their effectiveness? I mean, um, I mean, there is like an empirical answer to this. And it's like Israel is an economic powerhouse. There's no getting around that fact. Um, it's a quite wealthy country with a lot of income inequality, but it's, you know, it's quite wealthy. Um, and, you know, they have like they're a major player in the tech scene. Like basically every major Silicon Valley company in the United States has some links to Israeli companies. Um, a lot of Israelis work in Silicon Valley and or work in Israel's equivalent of Silicon Valley after like serving in military intelligence. So there's like a, a pipeline of young, smart Israelis who are sort of taught the dark tools of spycraft and then go on to profit off of that in the Israeli tech sector. And then of course that tech sector is integrated into the U S tech sector. Um, 
so you know, like on an empirical, as like an empirical matter, the like boycotts of Israel, which formally started in 2005, haven't had a huge impact on the Israeli economy. Um, so you know that is just like a fact that Palestinian Palestinians and their allies have to contend with that like Israel is an economic powerhouse and like a lot of states don't see it in their interests at all to cut off trade with Israel or um, boycott Israel at, at all. Um, you know, that's not to say that I don't, this is not me ca- casting doubt on the, the BDS movement. It's a Palestinian led call started in 2005 to boycott Israeli products, divest from corporations that do business with Israel, with Israel's military, and to impose sanctions on Israel um, until it, uh, you know, starts respecting Palestinian rights. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's become a major issue within the United States. And I think that, you know, the BDS movement and BDS activists uh, have succeeded in raising awareness and giving people tools to like do something not only do they know about the issue they can do something about it they can you know inve- you know investigate where their pension fund is investing money in and if it's investing money in you know caterpillar bulldozers that are sold to the israeli army like call for those companies to divest from right but you know a single divestment here or there is not really going to impact the israeli economy i mean the thing that will is, is sanctions and and what the main thing that the bds movement is asking for like an, an arms embargo on Israel. Um, and then and then I guess another complication is like Israel connected to its tech sector, it's Israel's weapons industry is also quite big. Um, you know, they're, they're a leading exporter of arms. Um, and so, you know, it's another like rich target for BDS activists, like to stop Israeli weapons deals from going through. But it's also like quite difficult when you have, you know, a country like India, for instance, a huge country like India buying up Israeli weapons, you know, galore. So I guess that's my complicated answer. Like, I think there's been a lot of inspiring activism that that comes from the BDS movement. And people should respect the Palestinian call. And, and, and also, you know, there have, there have been major successes, like in the cultural realm, you know, getting pop stars to cancel concerts in Israel, um, and that's not nothing. Um, but I think they are relatively small steps in the grand scheme of like where, where things need to go for that to actually have a major impact on the Israeli economy. Um, and just hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I wanted to move into some big picture questions before we go. Um, and perhaps this is, more material for bonus, but let's try it out anyway. Cause, uh, you know, I, I've been accused of thinking in too broad, uh, generalities most of the time, but I just can't help it. We're communist podcasts. That's always on our minds. So, um, I want to know your take, like, how does this Palestinian struggle fit into the wave of movements in the region for both, uh, economic and political rights? And then I'm going to ask you a follow-up question how it fits into the broader fight for communism, but we can, we can go one by one. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to answer the communist question with, with, with any, uh, with any clarity. We can't assume but Jamie, I, we can't assume that all our guests are communists. You know? Well, they know what they're signing up for <laughs> okay. when they come on. If you show. feel like answering that question, feel free, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair, fair enough. I mean, I would say like, but I can definitely answer like the regional and sort of global struggle question um, outside of like the specific communist struggle. Um, I mean, like Palestine has always been a, like a key call for the left in Arab states and, and also like for Islamist movements in Arab states. But in a lot of in some cases, the Islamist movements are like opposed to the left in the Arab world. So we'll, we'll, we'll stick with the Arab left and like sort of unions and, and so on. I mean, like in Egypt is like the case that I know the best. Um, you know, Palestine was essentially used to get around the Egyptian 
regime under Mubarak's crackdown on any political organizing. And because the um, because of the cachet that Palestine has, even and, and sort of how Palestine has been like used by Arab regimes, it's more difficult to crack down on solidarity with Palestinians in the guise of like protests. So like in Egypt, some of the some of the like some of the protests that like began the wave of organizing that eventually led to the 2011 uprising against Mubarak was related to Palestine. Um, and the Egyptian authorities, you know, found it difficult to crack down because there's such widespread pro-Palestinian sentiment among Egyptians. And so you can see in that case how Palestine becomes a rallying cry and eventually leads to like a broader struggle against authoritarian regimes um, in, in the Arab world. And, um, and that, you know, remains the case in, in a lot of Arab states, um, that Palestine is, is important, particularly among citizens who see in Palestine a sort of example of injustice that they're also experiencing, particularly if they're in sort of U.S.-backed dictatorships. People in Bahrain after Israel and Bahrain signed a normalization agreement uh, you know, they protested that, um, you know, same in, in Morocco and Sudan. They, but their their governments are not responsive to their citizens, so they could sign diplomatic deals with Israel um, without, pay, you know, without paying regard to what their citizens um, believe about Palestine and Palestinians. Um, so, you know, Palestine remains um, really integral to how people in the region view the world, how they view the Middle East, how they view the United States um, as a sort of, uh, a a beacon of resistance to um, the current U.S. backed order, which has also led to them being, you know, left without any political rights or any um, way of of voicing their 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 opinions in in, the, in those countries. That's interesting because um, I read a critique from angry workers that said kind of the opposite which is to say like governments and the ruling class in various neighboring states like Lebanon and Iraq have taken advantage of the conflict on some level to sort of shore up support from their own rebellious populations on the grounds of some uh, pan-Arab solidarity that allies class conflict. Are Ooh. they just tripping? <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I haven't, I, I, I think I read that piece, but like very briefly, so I can't, I, so I, I, I'm not gonna, you know, I, I can't go into the specifics of that piece, but the, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll take what you said at face value and say, you know, I mean, there's no denying that Arab, Arab dictatorships have also used Palestine to distract from their own failings. Like, I mean, I think that is a right-wing talking point, but it's also true, right? Like Egypt, um, and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, I mean, they all tried to blame, you know, they've all tried to blame their own failings on like Zionism and Western imperialism. Um, and, you know, not that there isn't some grain of truth to that as well. It's not like Zionism and Western imperialism didn't contribute to an unfair regional order, but it's also true that um, it is a convenient um, dis- distraction from from their own uh, sort of internal uh, uh, national uh, and class struggles, um, so it's that's not that's not wrong. Um, but but again, it's it's really it's real it's really the what frame of analysis are you using? Like, are you only focusing on what the regimes are saying and the regimes' relationship to Palestine, or are you really focusing on like the workers and and citizens and their relationship to Palestine? Because if you look at public opinion, it's very clear across the Arab world that everybody supports Palestinians. Nobody is standing with Israel, no matter what Arab governments like Bahrain and Sudan and Morocco normalize with Israel um, for their own interests. That has nothing to do with what the citizens believe. And the citizens continue to stand with Palestine because they see it as a clear case of injustice that has parallels to their own cases of injustice that they're fighting around there and they're rallying around it. That's, yeah, that's a great point. Um we're running out of time. Uh, thanks so much for walking us through some of these complex questions. I, I really love how clear you uh, you can make it seem, although it's never quite clear. It's always an illusion. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I recommend everyone uh, check out Alex's work at Jewish Currents and The Intercept and elsewhere. 
And uh, we we opened it with a stupid question, um, and we're going to close it with one uh, about the name of the podcast, uh, uh, The Antifada, which is a combination of Antifa and Intifada. And it was a name that when I before I joined the show, when Jamie and Sean were talking about it, I said, by no means can you call yourself that. That is a terrible idea. Do not do that. I forbid you. And uh, they did it anyway. And um, that ship had sailed, <laughs> to be fair. What the we Matthew already Amara? got a logo made up. Like, yeah, you were not there at the birth of the Antifada. Otherwise, <laughs> maybe we could have, you know, done something about it. Wait, I so go back and forth on the name, but who suggested but, it first? It was my idea. Got it, Full got disclosure. It. And I was like, you know, I didn't think as hard about it as I should maybe pretend that I did. <laughs> it was just kind of a funny combination of words that I came up with. And I was like, but you know what, actually? Uh, and I was like, oh, well, these what what are two things that are really scary to the right? Mm-hmm. Antifa and Intifada. Let's combine yeah. them together. But also totally. I was like, I'm connecting up struggles all over the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I'll admit, like, I'm not a fucking expert on. Uh, I mean, I am. I am more of an expert on Antifa than I am on uh, Intifada because I am, you may not know, the the CEO of Antifa. But um, yeah, no, do you I, think I, our name I, is problematic and should we be canceled? Yes. <laughs> um, no, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so at all. Uh, I think it's, 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 uh, it's clever. It's clever, you know? Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> you're, I don't know if right. I can believe you or not. <laughs> you're just being nice. I mean, you're right that it that that both of those things drive the right crazy. I mean, to, and I actually can also turn this funny question into like a somewhat serious one on like the notion, like what the word intifada invokes amongst like the average American versus mm-hmm. what it actually means. Yeah, and it's scary to like most Americans and like Fox Fox News viewers. You know, if you say we want an American Intifada. They're going to say, oh, my God, the Intifada, that means, you know, suicide bombings and, and chaos and, and death. Um, actually, the word Intifada means uprising. Um, it has no, there's no, like, inherent violence in the word. It's an, you know, it's an Arabic word, so maybe on the right date. Anything Arabic sounds scary, but nothing about the word Intifada means, you know, suicide bombings. That's just a tactic that was used during the second intifada. It wasn't the only tactic, um, mass protests, um, strikes, you know, strikes. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and of course during the first intifada, which was less dominated by like violent resistance, you know, strikes and tax boycotts and civil disobedience were the main tools that Palestinians used during the second intifada. Those tools were also on the table, but it was definitely overshadowed, shadowed by the turn to militancy and violence. Um, but, um, you know, that that nuance is lost or it's ignored because the right wants to exploit the term to scare the living daylights out of people so they don't come to identify with the Palestinian struggle. Um, so that's intifada. And, and uh, it is certainly a contentious word in the American lexicon. Um, in, in, in New York City, I remember... I, an educator was fired um, from her job at the city's first dual language Arabic English school because uh, a group that was sort of connected to her was selling shirts that said Intifada NYC and the New York Post called her up and she, instead of like denouncing the term, she like explained it to the reporter. Mm -hmm. And then like the headline was like, you know, principal defends use of the word intifada and she this was is, forced to resign this is pretty recent right this is not like an old story uh 2007 oh okay i think something like this actually happened pretty recently or maybe they reposted oh, really? the article it looks like we're running out of time but once again you have taken a silly question <laughs> and made it done a very good answer uh to it and also i'm gonna clip this and play it back at andy <laughs> whenever he talks shit on the name yeah honestly i i mean now that I have your blessing, maybe I feel a little bit better about it, <laughs> which I kind of have to anyway, because we're not we're not going to change it at this point. All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.